For the News and Observer, I'm Don Vaughn, your host for this episode of Under the Dome for the week of Monday, February 27th, 2023. To celebrate Black History Month, Under the Dome has been focusing on Black lawmakers, relevant legislation, and of course, history. We have a special guest today, the Senate Democratic Leader Dan Blue, who represents Raleigh. Blue is also the first African-American Speaker of the House in North Carolina. Senator Blue, thank you for being here. Thanks for having me, Don. Look forward to talking with you. So Senator Blue grew up in Robeson County, went to North Carolina Central University, and then Duke Law School. He was first elected to the House in 19... You can correct me if I'm wrong on any of this bio information. Uh, you are first elected to the House in 1980 and then elected House Speaker in 1991. You ran for the U.S. Senate, then returned to the House in 2006, then moved over to the Senate in 2009. That's correct. Okay. <laughs> So I uh, want to go back to 1991 uh, when you made history as the first black speaker of the House here. I was looking at a December 1990 New York Times story where they talked to you. They gave the context of your reelection, uh, being at this reelection to uh, your seat, being at the same time that Jesse Helms defeated Harvey Gantt. So what do you remember from that, that campaign season, the obvious national attention on North Carolina during that uh, season and then you know just a month two months later you were elected speaker. Well, it, it, it was an exciting time, and uh, the Harvey Gantt running against Jesse Helms was was epic. I mean the entire nation got involved uh, because Jim Hunt had run against him six years earlier against uh, Jesse Helms, and so Harvey consolidated uh, groups uh, uh, from around the state and around the country. Uh, so it was exciting. And uh, there, we really thought uh, that he was going to win. And there's a famous ad that's still out there that exists uh, that sort of turned the election in the last couple of weeks uh, of it. Uh, and, and, you know, it's an issue that we're still debating right now. Uh, it was a question about affirmative action. Uh, the decision is before the U.S. Supreme Court on what aspects of affirmative action universities can use, the Harvard University case and the UNC case. Uh, that the court will hand down an opinion in the next uh, few weeks, I guess. Uh, but anyhow, that was the environment. And so uh, uh, the thing that uh, the takeaway was uh, a picture of hands uh, saying that affirmative action takes your jobs away. Uh, I mentioned that because uh, uh, th th those themes constantly resurface over time. Uh, we get some of the same arguments now with uh, critical race theory or people's idea of what that is. But it was a very exciting time. We went through the election, uh, and uh, while we were going through the election, several of us had been uh, out campaigning uh, to be speaker, uh, the, running against the sitting speaker. Uh, and uh, so we were busy traversing the state just as uh, that campaign was going on for the United States Senate uh, in 1990. Uh, and uh, I got the chance to the, again, travel into all of the areas of the state. Uh, I think uh, I probably went to 80 or 90 counties, wherever the members were. I went to their homes and their communities to get a feel of what the issues were that uh, their voters were concerned about. So that if I was successful as speaker, that would always be in the front of my mind, uh, ensuring that every member could maximize uh, his or her potential uh, to realize the things that their constituents thought that they could uh, help them achieve. 
and, and to some degree even did that with some of the uh, Republican members. Not that I was looking for their vote uh, for speaker through 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 a uh, Democratic caucus, uh, but just trying to figure out what the heartbeat of the state was. And so after Harvey uh, was defeated uh, in November 1990, uh, the, the, again, I got in my car and I got an old friend from eastern North Carolina. His name was Ed Bowen, uh, who made one of my nominating speeches. Uh, and Ed, uh, Ed liked to uh, refer to himself as just a down-home country redneck uh, who was happy to be working with me. He was a great representative. Uh, and we traveled in uh, weeks at the time, and over the next uh, a month, uh, we touched bases with pretty much everybody in tying down the votes. And so there was another sense of excitement among a lot of the people who had worked hard in Harvey's campaign uh, that if we could pull this off, there'd still be uh, somewhere pulling the levers of power, someone from a minority background. What, uh, how would you have described the Democratic caucus at, at that time when, I mean, just the Speaker Moore being reelected here, it's kind of seemed like a done deal ahead of time, you know, and then like Representative Sane says, oh, I want more reelected, that sort of thing. And I guess it's different because he's been Speaker for a while. But that was campaigning for the, the speakership that's pretty involved with all the travel you have to do. How did, how did you, um, how, I guess, how would you describe all the all the Democrats then, if listeners don't know, that it was obviously a Democrat majority at the time. And yeah, uh, there were 85 Democrats at the time. And so, so I had intimate conversations with every one of them. Uh, and I had to have 43 as a magic number. Uh, plus, you had to build in a little bit of cushion. Some folk have trouble counting. <laughs> and so, so we built in a little cushion. And what I was aiming for was to really locked down 50 solid votes. Uh, that way I could, sta could stand some erosion, uh, you know, the 8 10% erosion uh, of folk who might have their minds changed by their constituency back home and various other things. And uh, it, it, was, it was a grueling uh, contest. Uh, and it was a, 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 a time that I could be very candid you know, with all the members individually. I, you know, I'd, I'd been here 10 years by that time. Uh, very young, a big crop of us came in uh, in 1980. Uh, the, 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 the latter 1970s generation in college experience and all of that. And so we were looking for different ways to get things done, sort of uh, the end group from the Watergate uh, elections and stuff. And so uh, as we talked to people, sort of uh, sharing what our ideas of what North Carolina is and what it could be, uh, it was very informative, I thought very stimulating. Uh, very seldomly did we talk really about uh, uh, the significance of electing a minority, uh, electing a black person uh, to uh, lead the House. At that time, the governor did not have veto power. And so the, the, the speaker was heading uh, basically an independent branch of government. Uh, and what we said was, was it. I mean, there was no second-guessing, uh, no vetoing. And so I think uh, as we moved around the state uh, and also tried to mobilize groups in various areas around the state uh, who would talk to their legislators, uh, express to them the significance and importance uh, that they placed on electing a black person speaker of the North Carolina House, uh, had never happened, hasn't happened since. And so it was, it was energy-filled, uh, uh, and again, 
we were just getting to the stage of cell phones. Uh, and they weren't really cell phones. They were pretty uh, big gadgets that you took around with you. Uh, they were uh, based in your car. So we were really perfecting that, just talking to people all the time as we went across the state. Uh, but, but you know, a lot of the uh, issues that we were facing then uh, were, you know, what was happening in higher education uh, with the HBCUs. Uh, they had just come through a significant lawsuit uh, against the university on funding and stuff, and that's some of the stuff that, stuff that we had spent time on uh, back in the mid to late uh, 80s in trying to make sure that the funding for the historically black colleges and universities uh, was was equitable and try to make sure that uh, uh, you know, we were trying to really have them perform at the highest level that they could perform. A lot of questions about uh, economic development uh, that we were going through and discussing with many of the members. Uh, and so it was a typical campaign. It seems like a lot of things that, I guess that's about 30 years ago, a little over 30 years ago, which doesn't seem, the 90s doesn't seem that long ago, but I guess when you say 30 years, it does. Uh, that's, it seems familiar, right? Because HBCU caucus is just starting, you know, the what you're talking about with the affirmative action, a lot of these same issues. Um, for our listeners, we're recording this in Senator Blue's office, and and we're sitting at the table in his office, and behind him, framed on the wall, is that 91-92 House session with the with the photo of you and and um, looking at uh, the podcast this month and thinking about Black history in the legislative building, looking at all these all these photos of all the sessions all around the building, you 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 start to see the shift in representation. You know that um, I guess it was it was of course earlier with the, the first African American lawmakers here, but it's it goes from you know a lot of almost all only white men and you know and, and women are there also and um, and, and other representation. But that that's still there in, in this in this building. Do you ever do you notice those anymore? You said you weren't thinking at the time when you um, were campaigning for for why you should be speaker. But it's still, it, you know, of course, I'm sure it weighed on you that the significant moment that 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 your place in, in history, you know, it, it, it did. Uh, and I visited this building when I was very young uh, uh, after it opened. I was still in uh, uh, elementary junior high school at the time. Uh, and there was just this thing that was that 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 grasped you when you came in, and you went up to the top. You could you, then you could go out on 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 the quadrants and look around uh, with the plants and stuff up there. But uh, and and so after being elected, uh, what 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 registered with me is I had many school kids who would come up to me after my first term as speaker. Uh, who had looked at those pictures, and you know they the, the pictures were up, they go all the way around, uh, and and none of those pictures in the leadership uh, did it show any black people, uh, and so uh, th th that was encouraging to me. The kids who saw it uh, and they showed excitement about it. Uh, kids uh, from every background, from all over the state, uh, black kids, uh, white kids, uh, uh, you know, Native American kids. Uh, uh, kids from every background who really looked at those kinds of things. And, uh, uh, you know, sometimes I walk through the building now uh, and I'll look at the pictures still up there. I'll look at the pictures in the chambers that have been uh, erected uh, since then. Uh, and, you know, as, as a governmental operation, uh, you get a sense that uh, it ought to be representative of the people that are being represented here. 
Uh, and uh, sort of uh, looking back, uh, I, I feel good of becoming part of that. Uh, and you'd be amazed at the number of letters I got from fourth graders and fifth graders who had visited the building, but uh, as importantly, who later on, as they were taking uh, just a tidbit of history in the state, uh, they would read about it in some of their textbooks, uh, and the teachers would share it uh, with them. And I look at that uh, against the backdrop of what we're discussing now, uh, and wondering whether those kinds of discussions are the kinds of discussions uh, that would be prohibited, because you're talking about fourth grade uh, the kids and a part of their textbook, uh, pointing out uh, you know that this is a moment that ought to be remembered for some reason or other, uh, and how they reflected on that. So, but anyhow, it uh, it was well worth the effort, uh, well worth the time that we put in. Uh, and a very uh, jubilant time after I got elected. All right, we're going to take a quick break, and when we come back, let's talk more about the the bill that you just referenced. Uh, We'll take a quick break. You're listening to Under the Dome. I'm News and Observer politics reporter Don Vaughn, here with North Carolina Senate Minority Leader Dan Blue. Before the break, we were talking about representation in the legislature and also in how... uh, History is taught, American history, black history is taught, and this bill that, you know, it's still Black History Month, this bill was just introduced in the House again, that's about what the same bill as in 2022 that Governor Roy Cooper vetoed. Of course, the the dynamics have changed in the building now, and Republicans are closer to being able to overturn uh, Cooper's vetoes. What did, I don't know if you've read the new bill or if you want to share what you thought about the last bill. It's it's referred to as anti-critical race theory. The bill doesn't mention critical race theory, but in talking to the current House Speaker more this past week, he said it's a way of encompassing anything that talks about uh, a lot of, you know, history with, with uh, race involved. And it's like a list of different things that you can't uh, talk about can't teach students about, including things that would cause discomfort of other people, things like that. And a lot of lawmakers have said that, you know, sometimes there is discomfort in, in learning about history. So what, what do you think about that, that current legislation? And again, that this is over, you know, 30 years. For first, I think that we all have to appreciate what history is and what uh, knowledge of that history does for someone. Uh, there, there's a famous quote, uh, I'll remember his name in a minute, but he who does not learn the lessons of history is doomed to repeat its mistakes. Uh, and, and when I think about saying that you can't teach uncomfortable things about history, uh, it means uh, to some degree that, uh, that I can't teach my grandkids Sunday school. Uh, and the whole struggle uh, with Pharaoh and, and Moses and all of those kinds of things because it makes people feel uncomfortable. Um, and, and, and But that's what history does. It makes you sort of figure out where you are in time and what lesson do you take away from what this particular incident or episode might represent so that you make sure not to repeat it if you don't like what the results were. If you like the results were, I guess you would try to do the same thing again to replicate it. Uh, and, and I think that uh, what, 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 these bills are after certainly not critical race theory. Uh, and, you know, I'm not going to try to explain what critical race theory is, but 
you know, if, if you're in graduate school or law school, you might run into a critical race theory class. Otherwise, nobody runs into them. Uh, but, but, but to say that you can't teach uh, the full history of America, and not using it to blame anybody, but to say that this is what we've overcome. Uh, this is where we got the encouragement and the willingness to do things a different way. Uh, the same thing applies uh, to teaching uh, history of women in the United States, uh, teaching history of indigenous people in the United States. I think that who we are is such a direct result of who we were and where we've been. And it's important that we understand where we've been uh, so that we appreciate each other more uh, and we make it an even more exclusive society. Uh, I grew up in Robinson County, as, as, as you noted. Uh, I think it might be the only county in the state where there is no racial majority. Uh, and I got to tell you that sort of growing up in that setting made people learn how to get along with each other better. And you started learning a deeper history of where different folk, uh, in, at least I did, uh, where they came from. Uh, when I was growing up uh, in Robertson County, you, you were not supposed to teach certain aspects of black history. Uh, fortunately for me, and I think a lot of the others of us, uh, we had teachers who were dedicated and felt you ought to have the full picture of history, uh, and administrators who went out of the way to make sure that we learned the full history. Not to make us mad or make anybody feel bad, uh, but to incentivize us uh, to overcome some of those hurdles that we may have experienced. Uh, and uh, you know, as I listen to all of the debates about why history ought not be taught, uh, they, they, they seem to be trying to uh, cover something uh, that you're afraid that somebody will learn. And I believe in North Carolina school children, if you give them the information, they will process it uh, in a way that benefits us all. More importantly, I think that saying that you can't teach about certain things creates a real danger uh, for kids as they are getting inquisitive. Uh, uh, I don't need to tell uh, this listening audience or anybody else that every kid I know is much more proficient in social media and going on the Internet to find out whatever they want to find out uh, with or without their parents' supervision. And it's great to have an adult who's trained in talking about these things with these students to talk with them about it so that they don't end up getting information that's false, that's misleading, uh, and then acting on that false and misleading information. That's how you learn. Uh, the kids come to you with ideas or thoughts or something that they've heard about or read about. You ought to be able to explain it to them to an extent. And what you can explain, you ought to be able to talk with their parents uh, to help them explain sometimes. Uh, but it ought not be just, no, you can't ever say anything about these these, these subjects. What do you think? Um, we can talk about Senator Berger quickly. You've worked with him for a long time. Um, and the Republicans have a super majority in the Senate. So if the House passes this bill and it goes to the Senate, they don't. They can just pass it um, if they want. Have you had conversations with Senator Berger about why why this legislation is, is um, as you were saying, um, shouldn't be passed? Uh, or is it just something that you think will fall along partisan lines? I, I, th I think uh, at the end of the day, it will fall along partisan lines. I will talk to Senator Berger about it. I consider him a friend. I, we talk about multiple things. Uh, you know, we might have different views on a, a lot of things. But again, that's the value of conversation. Uh, you understand where somebody is coming from, and uh, I happen to believe that the more you understand where somebody is coming from, 
the richer the conversations you have with them. Uh, so that th- an idea whose time has come can earn its proper place in the marketplace of ideas. Uh, and so uh, I certainly will as we prepare to debate this once it comes from the House. Uh, and I'll talk to other members. Uh, uh, see, can I pull it away from just a partisan uh, issue? Uh, because uh, uh, the, 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 we have a variety of members, older members, younger members. Those of us who are older understand what this history encompasses. And I think we understand how to deal with it. Uh, are not threatened by it uh, any way or other because we saw an evolving world as we came through it. And so not just Senator Berger, but uh, some of the other members who ought to see the value of having a rich experience uh, as you come through school. Great appropriate, of course, uh, in talking about multiple aspects of history. Do you still think there should be the monument on the state capitol grounds uh, that shows African-American history that was you know, stalled with budget battle from three, four years ago now? And the most frequent visitor to the Capitol grounds where you're talking about, you know, students and, and field trips is that's that's who's there. Students come there. Do you think that that project still needs to move? It, it does. Uh, and I think more urgently now uh, than before. I mentioned the experience of these school kids coming through here. Fourth, fifth graders is when they come in. As springtime uh, comes out, you know, you start thinking about the Canterbury Tales. You know, everybody's going on a trip to learn something new and you learn something from them. Uh, when those kids mentioned to me what they saw in the portraits, uh, the pictures uh, around the legislative building, uh, it, it really etched it in my mind that their experience is important and they need the whole experience. There is no experience on the Capitol grounds of black existence in North Carolina. Uh, yet, since uh, uh, the, the, the first settlers came to the state, in addition to the, the, the indigenous folk who were already here, uh, blacks have been here uh, and came as free people before ensla- uh, enslavement was a reality here. Now, and it ought to be part of the story that's told in those monuments on the Capitol grounds. Uh, uh, I think it's important to have George Washington there. He was one of the fathers of the country, a great leader. Uh, but they can have a progression uh, of different folk at different times, different themes. Uh, and I think that it's very critical that we have the kind of diversity in the symbols that sort of embody who we've been uh, for young folk to see and for them to ask questions about and for them to give opinions on. So, yes, it's very critical that uh, we have that monument put on the Capitol grounds so that at least there's uh, some some indication of diversity and some indication that uh, we've been a presence here ever since the state began. Well, I appreciate the conversation. We're going to segue to uh, a little bit lighter segment at the end. Uh, about food and then our, our headliners, which of course can be the fire or, or serious. Uh, w- one thing I wanted to ask quickly is uh, you knew Governor Cooper when he was in this building. So what's what's one thing that uh, people don't know about the governor now that he was like here? Uh, in, in fact, uh, Governor Cooper was one of the House members who helped me become speaker. Uh, in 1990, and immediately after doing that, he went over to the Senate because the senator uh, who was representing that district uh, uh, died. Uh, um, th- th- he is a fierce competitor, uh, and uh, whether it was on the basketball court playing uh, uh, with our basketball team uh, that the uh, House used to used to uh, field, the, the legislature used to field, uh, as well as uh, I think, and, and folk know that know that because uh, he'll tell them that he blocked. Uh, feel forward, <laughs> uh, but 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 he is a fierce competitor, 
uh, when it counts. Uh, and uh, I think all in all, he's a pretty good governor. So you all played basketball together on the House legislative team? Uh, I played on the on the team. I didn't play nearly at the level that Cooper could play at, so I, I was a bench warmer for the most part until I became speaker. Then they wanted me to play a little more often. I wish uh, I wish we had video. So, <laughs> all right. Well, speaking about the legislative building, uh, recent listeners will know that I started this segment asking lawmakers or people that work here what their go-to item is in the cafeteria if they eat there or the snack bar. So, uh, do you? Uh, what's your favorite thing or was your favorite thing since you probably had everything in milk? They, they had uh, some of the best southern fried chicken of any restaurant uh, in the state. Uh, uh, and that's what I always uh, looked forward to on the day that they were cooking fried chicken. I would go down and uh, eat too much of it, uh, but uh, uh, it was just absolutely excellent. And, and a potato souffle, a sweet potato souffle, those were my favorite items. Fried chicken is usually on Tuesdays. I can attest that it is very good and makes you want to take a nap after. <laughs> so, all right, so let's move on to headliner of the week. Uh, it's I'll, I'll go first. My headliner of the week, there's been all kinds of news this week, but something more recent as we record this on Friday was that on, on Thursday night, House Speaker Moore was involved in a car crash. Uh, it was an unmarked General Assembly police car that random from behind and everything was fine. He was with uh, Representative Willis. So my headliner is uh, is that. And then um, I think maybe your headliner is also the factor in transportation. So Senator Blue, who or what is your headliner of the week? The headliner of the week is Joe Biden, uh, without a doubt, uh, uh, at taking a 10-hour train trip uh, at Ukraine uh, in the middle of a war zone, and more importantly, uh, sort of an in-your-face kind of train trip, and I know it was to uh, eliminate conflicts, uh, but actually telling Putin uh, that I'm coming through and it'd be wise for you to make sure that there are no bombs or anything going off along this trail, I think was uh, a sign of, of, of courage as well as a good play to show how tied we are with the, with the future of Ukraine uh, and their destiny in this war that they're involved in. I heard someone describe it as a rail force one. Rail force one. <laughs> All right. Well, thanks so much, Senator Blue, for, for being here. I'm Don Vaughn for the News and Observer. Thanks for listening, and we'll talk to you next time. For more from our politics team, subscribe to the News and Observer at newsobserver.com slash subscribe. Follow us on Twitter at Under the Dome and NC Insider, and sign up for our weekly political newsletter, also called Under the Dome, at newsobserver.com newsletters.